From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome back to the BG Ideas podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today we are joined by two very special guests, Dr. Sakile Nzinga Johnson and Kaylin Rich. Dr. Sakile Nzinga Johnson currently serves as director of the Women's Center at Northwestern University. Kaylin Rich is a queer feminist, a direct action organizer, a nonprofit leader, and a sexuality educator in upstate New York. On behalf of ICS and the Center for Women and Gender Equity, I'd like to welcome you both to BGSU. I'm thrilled to have you here as keynote speakers for the 2019 Women of Color Leadership Summit. The summit is designed to increase the number of women of color in places of leadership to encourage collaboration across the university, as well as share the lessons and knowledge on leadership practice developed and modeled by women of color. Thanks again for joining me. I'd like each of you to give a little background on your current work and how you came to the role you now occupy. What has been your own path to becoming a leader? Sikile? Um, That's a great question. I appreciate you asking. I um, often interpreted my career, uh, up until a few years ago, I interpreted my career as being disjointed. Every time I took a pivot in my career, I felt like I was adding all of these kind of disjointed parts of myself. I was started as a clinician, and then I'm a researcher, and now I'm, I'm really focused on uh, training social workers as a, as a professor, and uh, I couldn't quite see what the narrative was or what the, the arc was in my career. Uh, and then I came here to, uh, I came to Chicago and continued uh, my work as a professor and scholar and researcher, and began also doing policy work. And again, I felt like these were all very disjointed. I couldn't see then wh- where where the where the thread was, and then I was interviewing for my position at Northwestern, and um, and it was within that interview that it all began to gel for me, and I realized that each and every one of these pieces, being a clinician, uh, being an activist, being a uh, working in policy, working in research, being an educator, that each one of these pieces prepared me to now step into my role as the director of the Women's Center, and that that was my narrative, and it wasn't disjointed, but actually that they were building me in all these different skill sets that I would need to. To move into this this leadership role because I actually like doing all of those things. I like doing research and I like policy and I, I like being able to uh, be empathic towards people, which is a use of my clinical skills. And I also like to educate folks and I um, and I love to be in community and in collaboration and coalition with folks. And so all of those things are pieces of my um, you know of my leadership style and they are things that I think we actually need if we're going to be change agents, uh, catalysts for change um, you know within institutional settings and so, so what yeah. is your vision now for uh, yeah. the women's center and yeah. you taking over this role you've been there a little while now yeah so I've been there about a year and a half and I think one piece for me is the vision is to articulate who we are and who we have been so um and shining a light on the things that the Women's Center has contributed to the institution. So historicizing our work is really important to me, um, and, and then amp- and then being able to then amplify it. So that's a, a vision of mine, so to remind the university of what we've done and what we have capacity for, and to assert ourselves within the institution. Uh, another kind of vision for me, because we sit in the office of the provost, so we're faculty, staff, and students serving, is to make sure that as I think about programming, that I'm thinking about programming that actually impacts 
impacts the larger campus community, and so it doesn't just kind of serve one uh, one piece. Uh, and then for, I'm also the um, co-chair of the campus-wide task force to support genderqueer, non-binary, and trans faculty, staff, and students. And so to also imagine um, the Women's Center um, and uh, as not only a safe space for women, but other gender and sexual minorities. And so to expand out our notion of what it means to um, respond to gender inequity and not just that it focuses on women, but also um, trans and non-binary folks. And so that's a, a real big commitment of mine. And I see myself leading that institutional work and um, not just at the institutional level, but even transforming some of our practices within the Women's Center. And then the final piece is to always center the experiences of the most marginalized at Northwestern University's campus. It's a very elite institution, and so um, how we think about marginalized communities is even amplified in that setting. So first-generation students, transnational folks, um, gender and sexual minorities, um, women of color, indigenous uh, people, um, first-gen, and I might have said first-gen already, but first-gen and working-class folks, all those folks are truly on the margin at Northwestern, and so um, keeping them at the center of my program is really, really critical for me. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Kaylin, what about you? What has been your journey to the work you're doing today? Yeah. So uh, a great build off of uh, what Sakile was talking about at the Women's Center. I actually was co-director of the Women's Center at my university for undergrad. So I went to a, a state school in New York, um, State University of New York College at Oswego, little rural, actually the town, the city of Oswego is a lot like the city of uh, Bowling Green. So uh, I feel that like kind of downtown, one main street surrounded by rural expanse, and then one, we had a Walmart, you have a different store, but one like big store where all of the things are. <laughs> we, we do have a Walmart too. <laughs> you have a Walmart too? Yeah, yeah. Dr- driving out all the moms and pops, but that's a whole other a whole other podcast. Um, so anyways, I uh, our, our Women's Center there came out of that sort of history of Women's Centers. It was started in the 70s, 1974, I believe, uh, by a group of women who wanted to respond to sexual assault and to employment issues, to wage issues and, and employment access for women. And it started off campus, actually, and eventually came on campus. Um, the difference is that, that was a student-led, student-run organization. So both myself and my co-directors were all undergraduate students, um, funded through our student association, like our student government. Uh, but it was through that that I really began to sort of like actualize myself as a leader in activist movements. I think activism has always been part of my personal narrative. My parents were both public school teachers. They were both union leaders. So I like to joke that I'm a community organizer and my organizing experience goes back to stuffing folders around the dining room table for my mom and dad for their union meetings because that's sort of my earliest memory. I grew up with this sort of idea that if you want to see something change or if you want to advocate for your rights, you have to do it yourself. And college was really the first time where I actualized that and internalized it. It became part of who I am, not just how I grew up. One of my first jobs was working in a, uh, a a shelter for women and children escaping family violence. And I made those connections through work I was doing as a student leader at the Women's Center, uh, as well as some of my kind of additional, you know, that long list of things that I do come out of that time. So uh, I was a sexuality educator for a period of time for about five years. And it, it was sort of a side job on top of my full-time job. And I would travel around the country talking about sex ed. I did a lot of freshman orientation programs. I also did a lot of the uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, programming. Um, and that company I, I worked for, Sex Discussed Here, discussed, like talked about, not discussed like you. Uh, they're most popular for the I Love Female Orgasm program. Some people might recognize them from that. Um, we actually brought them to bring that program and some of their other programs when I was a student leader. So at the Women's Center, we brought this group in. Uh, this, it was a, a, it's a couple 
who was really doing the work just with them at the time. And then they started hiring more people. And they remembered me, weirdly enough, from college all those years ago and uh, reached out and asked if I would be on their team. So I've been lucky to cultivate a lot of relationships. And a lot of what community organizing is about is, in fact, about cultivating relationships and, and building meaningful connections between people of various kinds of lived experiences. And uh, it, it all goes all the way back to the Women's Center. So Similarly, I've worn lots of hats. I've tried out lots of different things, uh, which is why it's hard to sort of define what I do. I would say professionally in terms of my day job, I've been a – what I, w- I would say my skills are community organizing. What I've done is sort of professional activism. So uh, – and I, I, right now, my job is assistant advocacy director. I, I oversee our statewide offices outside of the main office in New York City. And then I used to run one of those uh, regional offices as well. Um, and then on the side, not on the side, in addition to, you know, I'm also a writer. I write for autostraddle.com. It's a queer independent website for women and non-binary folks, for and by. Uh, and that actually, writing for that site is actually what got me the book deal for Girls Resist. So I'm a first-time author of a YA young adult book um, called Girls, Girls Resist, uh, a guide to activism, leadership, and starting a revolution. So Girls Resist wasn't actually an idea that started with me in a direct way. It started with I was writing for Autostraddle, this column called Be the Change. And this all happened after the 2016 election. The reality is the idea for writing this organizing column, just based on my personal experience as an organizer, started way before the election. It wasn't like a direct response to it. It's just an idea that I'd run by my editors and they were like, yes, let's do a little mini series on organizing. And then we kind of put it on a shelf and I just hadn't gotten back around to it. Uh, after the election, it seemed like the content that we already had planned on creating, so it was relevant then and it's relevant now, was was information people wanted. People wanted to know, how do I take action? Like, how do I get involved? And a lot of people were either entering uh, activism for the first time or we're coming back to it after a long time and just we're really looking for this kind of stuff. And at Autostrada, we're also bringing it through a queer and feminist lens. So uh, I decided to take that project off the shelf. I started reading, or writing, I started writing this column called Be the Change about community organizing. Similarly, at my publisher, Quirk Books, my editor there had this idea on the shelf before the election of a teen activism handbook. She handled a lot of YA titles, a lot of YA feminist nonfiction. Um, and similarly, after the election, she was like, okay, this is the time to find someone to work on this project. So my publisher actually reached out to me, not the other way around. It was a traditional publisher, not an academic one, and, and asked if I wanted to collaborate on this project. And from there, it became mine. So I mean, you know, once I signed on and came under contract, like I did all the work of writing the book and the the, the way that it's framed is like 100% in my words and language. But the idea for it was sort of a collaboration between two people who were having similar ideas at the same time. What are some of the challenges from where you sit in the work that you do? What do you see as some of the greatest challenges women of color face in terms of accessing or succeeding at leadership roles, whether it's in the academy, at not-for-profits, in community organizing, in politics? Yeah. So I'll talk, I'll take a couple of those. I think, um, so in addition to my academic work, um, maybe it's because of my my role as a social worker, I've always done also community engaged work, activist work. And so I've been serving on the board of the Chicago Abortion Fund actually for the last six years uh, and have been the um, both in a leadership role as the board chair and co-chair, um, but also, you know, just serving on the, uh, the board more regularly. And um, I'm also, and I think that when I think about the Chicago Abortion Fund, and I think about um, the last 
decade or last 15 years where we've had women of color at the helm as far as being the executive director of the small not-for-profit as well as being in leadership capacity on the board. I think that what is it's it's a microcosm I think of broader challenges, which is we those spaces that serve women of color most and indigenous women most directly are also the most underfunded and under resourced, and so we are often doing so much with so little. Um, and when I look at organizations like um, Planned Parenthood or um, even the ACLU, I mean they are they are funded in a way that allows them to do their work, and and uh, but we are most directly on the ground connected to the everyday struggles and everyday experiences of uh, communities of color, uh, people of color, uh, working class communities, uh, rural and urban, and often don't have the resources to do. But so the expectations are high that we're successful, but we're not giving staff, we're not giving grants, we're not giving the funding, uh, the community support, the institutional support to do the work well. And I th- and so uh, women of color are often seen as failures when they get into leadership capacity, leadership roles because they didn't do well, they didn't end, but we, and, but my question is, have we been given the resources to do well, whether that's um, even access to education? Uh, you know, uh, many women who step into leadership roles are doing it because they see the need in their community, they roll up their sleeves, they become activists, They then people see their promise, they are hired, but they are, aren't always given the access to education and the skills training, professional development, they might need to do maybe the operations side of the the work and so um, I think that uh, or the we we do have all of those skills but we're faced with issues around racism and sexism uh, and a notion that we're incompetent right and so I think uh, from the the reading of our bodies as incompetent um, the lack of support that uh, we get structurally that um, don't allow us to, to succeed um, and I think the very the the complexity of issues that we also take on. Uh, we are um, fighting for, if, uh, for, for instance, I'm engaged in the reproductive justice struggle, and that means that I'm not only mobilizing around abortion access, I'm mobilizing around sterilization abuse, I'm mobilizing around access to health care broadly, to clean drinking water because it's lead, uh, you know, it's it's um, toxic due to lead, um, high high levels of lead. I'm um, concerned about public. Um, uh, education and housing access and food security. So all of these, um, from environmental issues to bread and butter issues, are reproductive justice issues. And that means women of color are often dispersed because we're engaged in all of these struggles, right? And we see them as connected. And uh, and that um, means that it really impacts our capacity sometimes to be impactful in any one struggle because we see, and the fact that we have to choose which struggles we should be connected with, I think is... Um, really problematic, but we often see the connections between struggles. So I think those are challenges because people who are in the environmental justice movement, or people who are are in the uh, you know the food justice uh, movement, or you know the clean eating, for instance, <laughs> you know I I don't know if I even call that a justice movement, but this notion around clean eating, you know, um, not looking at the lo- larger social issues and and uh, not thinking through the connection between social struggles um, means that women of color are doing that work, <laughs> and and I think then um, and that produces for me. Um, burnout that produces um, a sense of um, betrayal uh, that you don't see the connections between all of these uh, and um 
And then I also think that can impact then our effectiveness if we're if we're burnt out, if we're not supported, if we're not getting funded uh, in the ways that we should uh, get funded. If we're expected to do more with less, um, so I so that's what I think is on the community level what I've seen, uh, and you know and within struggles what I've seen is some of the real real barriers to to our success um, that they're not a, a about us at the individual level, but really structurally the the pieces that are swirling around us um, from an institution. Institutional level, when I think about higher ed, um, I think it's the same thing that we are often in marginalized spaces in institutional settings. Um, it is no surprise that most women of color are in are in the health fields, we're in uh, the professional fields like education, we're in social work, uh, we're in the uh, liberal arts and sciences, which are completely being erased and underfunded in higher ed. Um, and at the center level, we're in the social justice education, we're in the women's centers, we're, uh, we're in the, uh, you know, the, the multicultural student center. And so all of these spaces are the marginalized spaces. So we're marginalized people also occupying marginalized spaces within the institution. We're precarious people occupying precarious spaces within the within institutionalized settings and when you have that compounded amount of reality um, that is going to impact your capacity to be a leader and so um, so you're navigating what it means to live in this body but also what it means to even navigate and live within these units within higher ed um, and so I think um, and then you have people also lined up outside your door so outside my door are my students they're my peers, they're my colleagues, they're community members who now see me with a particular title and think I might be able to impact uh, their lives in ways that I sometimes and often don't have capacity to. Um, and sometimes there are even people who are administrators who are above me, but who look like me and also need support. And I don't have even with my title, institutional power to transform their, their to change their reality, uh, which really often has to be done at a policy level or a culture shifting level. So I think um, the expectation that we even, once we get into a leadership role, have the capacity to transform you know, centuries <laughs> of injustice and inequity um, and um, really, you know, um, is, is overwhelming and also demoralizing because you can only do what you can do within a workday. Uh, and we do make contributions, but we're expected, I think, because of our roles and our identities to somehow do great bigger work and more and more uh, impactful work than the next person. So the know. work is isn't always um, visible. Yeah. And it isn't supported in ways that allow that capacity to build. Yeah, and I and I also think that much of the work that and we had this conversation yesterday as we were visiting one of our grad the graduate students uh, well, graduate course was that um, the work is invisibilized because you don't see it in part of your annual review. You know, uh, with regard to if you're a faculty member, you, we know even at teaching institutions, service is is, is invisible, uh, and we know that women, queer folk, people of color first-gen folks are doing the majority of that that emotional labor that service um, and and that is retention work that that keeps colleagues and students here but it often doesn't count towards our annual review if your staff it doesn't go it, there's often not a space for it on your tenure portfolio um, or if it isn't weighted the same it matters we know it matters but it's not weighted the same you know uh, we're given contradictory messages focus on your scholarship focus on your teaching uh, but also be available to students. <laughs> 
and mentor. Uh, but so um, I think so it's those pieces that, you know, those kind of contradictory spaces, this invisible, invisible what I call invisibilized work and versus invisible work, because the work is, as uh, our colleague said, yes, it's very visible, but we're choosing not to count it. We're choosing not to. So that's an active, you know, actionable thing to not count um, the, the leadership work that looks very different sometimes, you know, um, but to count if someone, for instance, at Northwestern, they get a patent. Right. Uh, on a, so or they and so that is that makes the front page of the paper um, there. You know, they get more resources for their lab. Uh, but someone who actually has been committed to retaining faculty, staff and students at Northwestern also contributes to the university's growth uh, and development, but doesn't get the same, you know, type of accolades, you know, yeah. yeah. What about you, Kaylin, from your position, your roles, um, what are the concerns that you really take up in terms of women of color accessing and mobilizing leadership opportunities? Yeah, they're very similar in the nonprofit world, in the social justice world, even when we're talking about working in in communities and, and, and in community with uh, folks, these same things come up. Because who we are can't be separated from the work that we do, especially those of us that choose to work in helping teaching social justice fields. It's there and the things follow us. So we can create, uh, you know, safer spaces for each other, but there's always going to be triggers of racism and classism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism and just, you know, things that show up in those spaces because we are all complex people. And when you hold those marginalized identities, you also really can't separate who you are from the work you're doing sometimes. You have to really work hard at that. Uh, You know, I think, you know, most superhero stories start, someone gets their superpower is because of a traumatic event in their life. And I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize my love for my family uh, by saying it was a traumatic event, but being a transracial adoptee was a, a... literally life-changing event for me. So I came here at the age of 17 months. Uh, I grew up Korean and a very visible minority in a very rural area of Western New York where my family was white. My sister is also adopted in Korean, uh, but we were really the only Korean kids in our school. And uh, I grew up with all friends that were white, all teachers that were white. When you think about sort of my standpoint, I occupy space as a woman of color, but it took me a really long time to get there. Um, even, I, to be honest, I identified as a feminist first, identified as queer first, as a writer, as an activist for social justice movements, as a, as a student organizer, all of these things. It really wasn't until I was a fully grown adult that I came into understanding myself as a woman of color, which is bizarre to think about for white people, I think, because it's so visible on my face. Like, you look at my face and you think, oh, well, she's Asian. Uh but for me, it wasn't it wasn't so clear because I grew up so separate from my culture. And the trauma is around being like separated from who you are and being fed instead sort of the dominant narrative, which is a white and male narrative of, of who our country is, how we came to be when none of that was my my history. And I was completely cut off from it um, but through adoption, not through any one person's choice, but through the system of, of international and transracial adoption and the lack of thought about how that works. So on the flip of that, that's the, the, the superpower that came out of something that wasn't so great. The superpower I get from that... Um, which I try to use to open doors for other people, but also is exhausting, is that I'm exceptionally good at meeting other people where they are. I'm exceptionally good at respectability politics and adopting how I talk, how I dress, how I show up, and thinking through those things very actively every day. Uh, and, And so that I'm not threatening to white people. As an Asian woman, I also get to show up differently in spaces sometimes than my, my black colleagues. Um, 
because like the stereotypes, at least in New York State, around who we are are so different, and all of them are harmful. But the sort of microaggressions I I I get are very different than being seen as threatening or as violent or as angry. Uh, if anything, I have to do more to prove that I'm um, that I am strong and capable, and that I'm not like passive and like a receptacle for information or for honestly like white like BS. Like sometimes people come to me, and I think because Asians are light skinned, because we have a lot of racism in our own communities, there's there's a, there's a lot going on there. Uh, white people feel more comfortable talking to me than talking to let's say one of my black peers about about race, about issues, because they think we're going to have some sort of kinship around there, and my kinship is 100% with women of color, and especially with with queer women of color. Um, that said, it gives me access to, to open up spaces. And for me, I choose, I don't think it is anyone's job to be, to work with gatekeepers, to try to hold open those doors. Like a lot of people are just working on survival and that's a hundred percent, um, fair and, and really all we can ask of people. I choose to sort of use that that earned and learned superpower to try to build bridges for people, to try to take on some of that emotional labor that can be like truly exhausting um, in order to make things a little bit better, take a little bit of burden off, off of someone else. You know, I mean, I think it's part of, to be honest, I think it's why I've succeeded at leadership in so many ways is because a lot of people feel like they can relate to me, right? Um, I don't have, I, I have that reputation. And uh, it's afforded me leadership opportunities because there's often often people in power are white. Often people in power are of uh, dominant identities in a lot of different ways. Even if I, I've worked primarily with women in my career in terms of leadership, but a lot of those women have been white. A lot of them have been all of them have been cisgender. Most of them have been straight, uh, you know, and, and generally come from a place of, of systemic privilege, systemic power. And um, they get to broker who else gets access. And I think a lot of why I've been given access, and I want to be really honest about it, is that I've learned and, and sometimes don't even do it intentionally how to sort of adapt to what white people think is like the right way to act or the right way to be in the world. Because I've had to do that literally from from as, as early as I can remember in school, in life, in my family, in my relationships. I've had to navigate being the visible other uh, and what that what that means for me in terms of both self-identification and how I show up. I mean, now obviously I'm more I'm more thoughtful and critical about it, but it does show up in um, everything you do. So how I wrote Girls Resist would have been really different than how my editor, who's who is a white woman, you know, like a woke, smart white woman, would have written it. But you know, she wouldn't have thought of some of the things that. I thought of just off the bat. And that showed even in the process. There were several times because all of the staff at that publisher at that time, not anymore, were white and all the people working my book were white. And there were definitely times where I had to sort of uh, do extra work of kind of like, you know, at one point they were like putting quotes into the book and all the quotes that they'd added were by white women. Every single one. And I was like, which was very, like the book is written in a way that's intentionally intersectional and intentionally accessible to young people, obviously. But I want like trans girls to see themselves in it. I want um, black and brown girls to see themselves in it and Asian girls. Uh, and queer and trans people in general, really anyone who has a marginalized identity, even though girls is sort of very binary language, I tried to break that down as much as possible, right? So if you're on the margins, this book is about giving this information to you. You know, and that comes up, there's a whole chapter on, there's actually a whole chapter on intersectionality and uh, like what people are now in social justice fields calling being an accomplice, what I call sort of like meaningful allyship, like really standing up and standing with. And then, you know, you put in all these quotes from all these white women, like in certain, and I was like, okay, I see what you're doing here. And not not even like, I don't know, like they were not, 
thoughtful quotes either and just one example and my publisher was great in that they did go back and change them out when I sent you know sort of the email where I was like this and this and this is problematic here are some other suggestions of like quotes you could use and you know like I did a quick google search it's not like this information is hard to find I was like how about we have like a black trans woman talking about gender equity instead of uh, no offense to Gloria Steinem, she's great, but instead of Gloria Steinem, and, and even that quote was, like, very heteronormative, it was about, like, men and women and, like, behind every man, and I was like, no, 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 this isn't, like, for teens, and it's also not, like, how we would frame this issue for people of color, for trans women, for people who are even more marginalized by the gender wage gap. So a lot of it is that. It's like that doing the constant awareness and the constant emotional labor and the constant, uh, especially something like a book that's going to have your name on it, you know? Like I couldn't let it go out in the world with just like added quotes from from important women, but there are lots of women who don't get that platform and I wanted to make sure their voices were included too. So a lot of uh, being in leadership is taking that step of um, putting yourself at risk a little bit because there's always the risk that someone's going to think you're difficult to work with or even, even as an Asian woman or that you're too militant or you're being, you know, I think earlier in the, we were, today we were talking about being feminist killjoys, but being that person that's like always making things hard and you just have to do it anyways. Good. Um, one of the things that we focus on at ICS is interdisciplinary approaches to important topics and the importance of sort of crossing over those conventional silos. So, Sikile, since a good deal of your research is particularly in relation to different disciplines and intersections of race, class, and gender, could you talk about how interdisciplinarity sure. shapes your work? Sure. I'm really um, excited to talk about this, actually from a teaching and a scholarship perspective. So um, I, I mentioned earlier, my career started in, a, as a, in the professions as a social worker. So, um, But luckily, I went to an undergrad institution that grounded like my professional development or my professional skills in kind of a um, really critical race theory, intersectionality, um, liberal arts education. So I was, uh, and I feel like liberal arts is where the beginnings of inter, uh, interdisciplinarity emerge. And so, uh, so I was really grounded in like a, what it meant to be a critical thinker, what it meant to um, be an engaged person in your community. Uh, and uh, I was able to model as a professor what it meant to have a strong liberal arts foundation before you had your, because I feel like any social worker needs to know how to ga- engage in humanity, needs to have critical thinking skills, needs to have depth in their analysis. And so um, that is critical for me as um, someone who received that kind of education to also deliver it to the next um, person. After uh, working in social work uh, as a professor, I also began to teach in women and gender studies and in psychology. So I'm interesting in the sense that I have been an educator in uh, a professional field. I've been an educator and researcher in uh, the an interdisciplinary field like women's studies and also in psychology, which is a social science. So um, it's been a wonderful, so interdisciplinarity is actually at the core of my teaching and my research. Uh, and I, and uh, and of course, in the field of women's studies, it is, it's, it's an interdisciplinary field. So how that shows up in my research is um, I, actually I'll talk about uh, my my both of my books, which somehow I have not talked about yet. <laughs> uh, but my my first book, which is an edited volume called uh, Black Women Mothering in the Academy, which is an edited volume that really looks at um, the theorization of uh, maternity as well as the experience of maternity in higher ed. And so um, myself and uh, I believe like 12 or 13 other um, scholars, some in academia, some in not, wrote about uh, the, you know, um, contributed chapters there. And my intention was, again, to offer an interdisciplinary intersection 
traditional uh, way of thinking about uh, motherhood in higher ed. And so sometimes people wrote about their um, their experience as mothers and their marginalization as mothers in higher ed, also in um, as black women navigating, uh, you know, uh, that embodied reality. Sometimes people talked about maternalized labor. I, I define maternalized labor not only as the emotional labor, but also the gendered labor and this assumption that we're going to take care of the university's children. But using and drawing upon social sciences, drawing upon personal narratives, um, deciding to allow people to write in a way that that incorporates their personal narrative and with research, right? And so um, allowing for that fluidity, uh, that boundless way, that disruptive way of thinking about academic work, you know. Um, so that's the the first book. And I really enjoy just the diver- if each chapter feels very, very different from the other. And, and so that I think that that book represents a, a nice example of um, the benefits and um, the interdisciplinary. And for me, the inclusivity, because it allowed black women to write in a way that was freeing and liberatory. Um, so in my current book, uh, I also am doing the same thing in which I, uh, which is inspired by a chapter in the first book, is, which is um, was written by a black queer woman who talked about um, being a mother and actually being a working class struggling mother as an academic. And, and so I became really... Um, fascinated by that sub theme that showed up in that first book about these black women who had who were highly educated and also receiving public assistance and receiving welfare and so looking at that paradox between highly educated and also poor as a black woman and so this first the second book which is called um currently the working title is laboring positions uh the higher education as a hyperproducer of inequity. And so within this book, I'm doing the same kind of engagement uh, from an interdisciplinary perspective in which I am using black women's narratives around being highly educated and also um, navigating poverty. And I'm also using, you know, um, data from uh, educational data, um, sociological data, uh, and historical data, you know, so both the, what um, unfortunately we call the hard data, right? (laughs) But including the narrative as well, and uh, and again allowing them to blend and bleed together, and uh, and be boundless in how I think through this work, and uh, to also be disruptive. Um, one of the pieces that I took a risk, and only because I was encouraged by a black feminist uh, who's my mentor, Julia Jordan Zachary, who I encourage you to read any and everything written by uh, this wonderful scholar. Uh, I struggled really hardly um, with finishing my final chapter, my conclusion. I just couldn't, I was stuck. I had writer's block and she said, um, it's time for you to tell your story. Because I had been trying to stay emotionally disengaged from the work uh, because that is the way we are trained as scholars, and particularly those of us who are in the social sciences, to stay distant from our work, uh, to be objective, to do the scientific method. And so I had been keeping some emotional distance from, from the work and she said, it's time for you to, to write. And so um, usually you might kind of do a little testimony in the preface of your of your book and as the setup, but instead I actually did it in the conclusion and I said it and um, and I used a not very non traditional I I was a rule breaker and so the the conclusion of my forthcoming book actually tells my story as an academic and uh, and. It's breaking lots of disciplinary rules by doing so, even the structure of the book. And I w- I'm lucky enough that Johns Hopkins University Press is allowing me to go on that journey. So when I gave it, sent it to my to the press editors, um, 
you know, they said this actually t- traditionally fits in the preface, but I like where you put it, and I think your story matters, and I think it goes here. So I think for me, that's the crux of what it means to be an interdisciplinary scholar is also just deciding to break the rules, deciding, but intentionally deciding, you know, that there's thoughtfulness. Is not, and I actually say within the text, I know I'm breaking the rules. I'm taking a risk here, um, but I want you to come on this journey with me. And I think that it is part of my method. Like this, So there's a methodological intention to it um, that I need to include my voice in this in this book and I think that I wrote the book initially as this researcher this outsider within but I realized that I actually am a character in my own book and I wanted to disclose that and I'm disclosing it here in this final chapter you know Um, so that was the kind of uh, journey I went on and it's you know my latest I guess articulation of what interdisciplinary means for uh, for me and of course that's at the intersection of race class gender and sexuality Uh, but and both of but I would say that this book really focuses on um, really critically class because I think we take up race and gender quite often uh, in academia, but I really want to point out the class struggle that women of color are facing within higher ed and uh, that is often not, the light is not shined on. So this book really forefronts our class-based struggles. And uh, yeah, so I'll just leave it there. So Kaylin, I want you to tell us a little more about Girls Resist. You've talked about kind of the Uh, what started the book. But how did you go about thinking through the form of the book related in some of the to some of the things Sakile was talking about interdisciplinarity? How did you decide that a young adult book was the right approach? And then how did you tackle what that book should look like? Yeah. So those are great questions. I think that we knew from the beginning it was going to be a young adult book. It wasn't immediately apparent whether it was going to be middle grade and up or high school and up. Uh, I'd initially conceived that it would be middle grade and up. Ironically, ironically, I, we ended up writing it for high school and up, but then now as it's getting different starred reviews and things, uh, a lot of educators are, are seeing it as middle grade and up. So I, and, and my first fan mail was from uh, a nine-year-old girl. So it really is exciting to me that it seems to be accessible to people a lot of different levels. My goal in terms of the tone of the book was not to come across as your mom, or even though I am a mom, or as like this older person that knows better how to do it, but just say, here are tools that I was given. Uh, This is like a very basic recipe for a cake. And I'm going to hand you the same recipe, but you may do something totally different with it. You can put your own frosting on it. You can add sprinkles to it. Maybe it's not a cake. Maybe it's actually a muffin or a cookie and you're going to like totally reinvent it. But I just want you to have a place to start. And much like, uh, you know, this is a very like typically gendered thing, but much like someone passes down a recipe through generations, I kind of want it to be that. Like this is my basic cake recipe. You you are going to like lead us into the future, making it your own in so many ways. Um, so that was really like the goal. I think I've lost sight of the question, but that's fine. Uh, (laughs) That was really the goal for me with the book in terms of making it accessible, making it inclusive, and really making about like trusting that girls already know and already hold that knowledge in their bodies as young as middle school and even younger. They know that the world's unfair and they know that it's affected them. And then giving them the tools to say like, okay, you want to do something about it. So how can I help you figure out what to do next? Thank you both so much. I've enjoyed this conversation. Our producers for this podcast are Chris Cavera, Marco Mendoza, and Joseph Starks. 
Special thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Center for Women and Gender Equity. Research assistance for this podcast was provided by ICS interns Olivia Davis, Strati Mustakeas, Melanie Miller, Alasia Parks, and Sarah Schaller.